You have reached the Geek Elite. Good luck. Mitch here from Geek Elite Media, and I want to talk to you about Cuts by Candice, an experienced hairstylist that is willing to work with you to get the right look for you. When it comes to important events in my life and I need to look good, I trust my hair with Candice. Mention our promo code GEEKOUT when making your appointment through the end of May 2019 and you will get 10% off your hair services. Follow Cuts by Candice on Facebook and Cuts by Candice 3 on Instagram and start looking the best you, you can. Hey everyone, just wanted to say thanks for joining me on another great interview for Hey Mitch. Just wanted to say that the beginning of this interview has a little bit of audio problems, uh, but eventually it, get, it does get figured out, and uh, the rest of the interview goes pretty well. So I hope you enjoy my interview with with author Phil Smith. Hey, Mitch! Hey, Mitch! Hey, Mitch! Hey, Mitch! Hey, Mitch! Hey, Mitch! Hey, Mitch. Hey, Mitch. Hey, Mitch. Hey, Mitch. Hey, Mitch. Today on Hey Mitch, I have another great author with me, Phil Smith. I want to thank you for joining me and coming on to talk about your book. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. <laughs> uh, now, the the first book in the Ironscarth, I want to say? Uh, Ironscarth. Yes. Okay, sorry. Aaron's Garth, yeah. Is uh, The Brotherhood. It is. Yes, it is my debut novel. And it is the first of five, maybe six books. I quite haven't figured out if I've got to split one in half or not, but it's the first in the series. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, how long? Uh, well, first, where does uh, the word Aaron's Garth come from? Uh, it, it sort of started out when I was when I was young. My family is uh, all very heavily invested in our Scottish heritage. And so when I was, and our Irish heritage as well. And when I was young, my grandfather would, would uh, you know, teach us Gaelic phrases because he was a fluent Gaelic speaker. And Aaron, you know, of course, is, is what they call Ireland uh, back in the time. And I remember thinking that was just such a really pretty name. And, uh, but I knew I couldn't call my, my little world Aaron because it was, <laughs> that was already Ireland. Right. So I, I just added Garth to the end of it just for kicks and giggles. And that's sort of where it just sort of stuck. <laughs> <laughs> and and did, you, did you come up with the, the name for the Chronicles first before starting to write? Or was that something that came to you afterwards? It, it sort of came after the initial the initial start of the story, uh, but it was a it was a long time coming up to where you know I finally got to the point of publishing it, and so uh, I had a long time to just sort of sit on it, and I had I had a lot of plans for it, and didn't really do anything for many many years, uh, but that was one of the few things that stuck around, and I thought you know what that that's been there since the beginning, so I might as well keep it. <laughs> And uh, you know, without getting into too too much spoilers, what 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 is it that we we come to learn in in the Brotherhood? What what's the Brotherhood about? So the Brotherhood is is, is a story. Uh, it's a it's an action adventure story about Paige, uh, who is the main the main uh, protagonist, and she is the daughter of a village chieftain, 
And in one horrible night, uh, her entire world is turned upside down by an invading army. And so uh, she is she is left alone in the wild with uh, nothing more to her name than really a scroll that she knows her father was uh, trying to protect with his life. And so she instead of a group heroes that she encounters the woods, and they agree to help her storm a castle to save her sister from a vile prince who's taken her hostage. And that's that's sort of in a in a very <laughs> it's 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 kind of hard to figure out where to put the how much detail to put into a summary. Where, right. You know, if I could tell the whole story in two pages, <laughs> it wouldn't be a six hundred plus page book. <laughs> this is exactly true. You're absolutely right. So, I mean, what was it that made you want to sit down and write this story? What was the what was the kickoff for you? Well, so technically the story, I mean, without going, you know, too far back into it, the, the story is actually about 14 years old. Okay. Uh, when I was a young, I was a young boy, um, my, my family homeschooled our whole life. And there was a, a camp that we would go to with a bunch of other homeschooled families. And we would get together and we'd just spend a week, you know, out in the woods, just sort of hanging out. And I had a group of friends that uh, we all went out and we would, we would go into the woods and we weren't really supposed to, but we would, we would cut down, you know, saplings and, and fashion them into swords and bows and arrows and, and just wail on each other for a whole week. And when I was about 14, I thought, you know, it'd be really fun to sort of take all of my friends and turn them into characters that I can then put into a story. And I just started sort of doodling down. And so I, I came up with what I would call the first draft <laughs> when I was about 15 and sort of sat on it until years, years later. And uh, so about three years ago, I, I pulled back out the old manuscript and I thought, well, this would be something that would, you know, I, I put this much time and effort into it. Maybe I'll just, you know, start editing it, tweaking it here and there and see what happens. And what happened was uh, I got a much better story but kept a lot of the same characters and a lot of the same inspirations. And so uh, most, of, most of it was knowing that I had this story that had been sitting on a shelf and it wasn't doing anything. It was just sitting there being useless. And so I figured since I'd put so much time into it already, I might as well just finish it. And in between the, that 14 years, did you, did you take some creative writing classes or did you, was that something you pursued? <laughs> When I was in high school, I took a class uh, called the One Year Adventure Novel. Uh, it's taught by Dan Schwabauer, and I, Schwabauer, I believe, Schwabauer, Daniel Schwabauer, I believe is his name. And uh, he's a master storyteller, uh, round author. And what he did is he basically has a course where you can, he'll sit down and he'll walk you through the basic elements of what it is that makes good stories. He analyzes stories like The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, uh, Star Wars as a film. Uh, he takes uh, Harry Potter, all these classic stories that we all grew up reading. And he, he sits down and sort of says, this is the formula to create in a story that people want to read. And so I took that class for about a year and uh, wrote a completely different book, uh, completely unrelated. But I took those same, the same pieces of information that I learned in that and started learning, you know, applying it to this book that I'd already written sort of off to the side. And then when I got to college, uh, I went ahead and took, um, I majored in corporate and organizational communication, which included several electives for different writing classes. And so I took several literature classes to find out more about American literature and British literature and what makes both those styles unique and then turned around and took some creative writing classes on top of all that. So 
uh, basically my entire college career was was based around learning how to write. I can't spell worth a dang, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I can at least write something on a paragraph. <laughs> that's what that's what spell checks for, right? Spell checking exactly. Editors. Yeah, <laughs> Grammarly is my. I'm patron saint of writing at this point in my life. <laughs> so. Um, your background of you know having a, a rich heritage and your family of of you know being in the British Isles or whatever I I don't know what to say right there but <laughs> but that does that influence your your writing at all? It does a lot. Um, uh, truth be told, I've never actually been to the British Isles. Okay. Uh, <laughs> my my sister went to Stirling University in Scotland. My father graduated at Edinburgh University in Scotland. And uh, my grandfather was a, a linguist teacher, and he taught Gaelic, among many other languages. Um, and he's taught them abroad, all the way from Tokyo. But most of mo- my life, uh, only was just a strong connection. So there's a lot. I've around a lot. Having heritage was sort of something. You know, I didn't have a yard to play in all the time necessarily <laughs> because we moved around so much and so what we would do is i we would i learned to play the bagpipes i learned to uh, do highland dancing you know got very into history and, and a lot of the music and and stuff that i listened to growing up was traditional celtic you know ballads from ireland scotland ulster wales and the stories that we would read you know um, we would read uh, tales of finn mccool and a lot of scottish heroes and so th- this 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 very you know uh my childhood was spent around adventures and and wanting to be like all those people that I would read about or be told about by my grandparents, and so I think it definitely did. Uh, it definitely put a lot into the story because a lot of my characters are based off of European folklore, but and, and but in a way I also try to act more like C.S. Lewis. You know, he tends to take European folklore. Tolkien would have dwarves and elves, and that was about it. But then you take C.S. Lewis, who would take all these other fantastic creatures from other mythologies and sort of blend them together into a new world. And, and that's sort of what I like to do. Um, so a lot of the characters, a lot of the types of, of creatures, the myth, the myths, the mythos, you know, are all very intergrained into that story compared to what I, what I read growing up. And that was a, a huge influence on me. Oh, wow. I mean, that's, that's very interesting. Um, when you go to your website, there's obvious, there's a lot of uh, what looks like your drawings to accompany the, 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 the writings. Was that, did that come first or did the writing come for us first? Uh, the, the, the doodling started when I was just, just a very wee lad. Um, so I've been, I've been coloring with crayons and pencils since I could pick them up. Um, I did take several art classes when I was younger, um, before I started getting into writing and realizing that I enjoyed writing, uh, because I might, I always saw things in pictures, you know, my, I relate to things in pictures. I always, you know, I, when I read directions, I never look at the actual <laughs> words. I always look at the pictures first. And so, uh, I took some, some little art classes here and there. And then when I, uh, started getting in more into graphic design in college, uh, I had the opportunity to start doing more in-depth studies. And so I got into graphic painting, graphic sketching, and found that I really liked ink as a medium. So all of the, uh, all of the, the illustrations, uh, the, I had the, a, a brilliant uh, British cover artist uh, do, me, do my cover for me just because I didn't feel I was 
quite that good and I wanted to have something that was quality but all of the in illustrations inside the book are actually my own um, they're all ink drawings or they are uh, graphic graphic sketches that were all done you know in-house as I would write a chapter I would sort of picture what I thought the best part of the chapter was and then I would sketch it out and some of those are several years old and some of them I did you know three days before I actually published <laughs> the book <laughs> you know how it goes yeah so I mean that's a good question then when when you're sitting down to write and 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 doing that how much of it is is drawing and how much of it is writing for you since i mean you, as you said you're a very visual person you like to see the pictures like do you do you sketch out certain ideas before you put it down into writing or is it is it an afterthought do you do you draw afterwards i would say it's a fairly consistent blending of the two okay. uh, sometimes i'll write a scene because i see it in my head and I think that would make a really good movie scene. And then I'll sketch it out. Or I'll just be doodling and I'll think, well, now I have to write, a, I have to write something that I can put this doodle to. So it's not <laughs> a big waste of three hours of my life. <laughs> uh, but altogether, it's, it's, a very it's a very blended um, a bit. My first draft of the novel uh, was actually about 250,000 words. And I somehow managed to get that down to about 157,000. Because when I write, I tend to write over detailed work. Uh, it's, you know, I would, I would spend a whole paragraph talking about the texture of the iron hinge on the door. And most people don't really need to know all that, but that's just how my brain works. And so sometimes what I would do is I would take all that extra info and I would sketch it out because you can see all of that in a picture without having to waste the time to read it. And we sort of just had to find a balance point because I, I see things like you would, you would read them in a movie script. Right. So I had a lot of beta readers that were very helpful in helping me pare that down before uh, we went to publishing. Hey, it's, it's it, you know, the over explanations worked for George R. R. Martin. So I don't see, I, you know, I figured if he can do it, then, then surely I can make something work. <laughs> That, that's that's another thing is how how it, I mean obviously you said it was very important for you how important beta uh, editors are for for writing a manuscript like that like oh, oh or highly uh, if you don't I, I feel like if you don't try to get some diverse opinions then you're just setting yourself up for failure uh, many authors have this sort of mentality that says. Uh, the, my work is my baby mm -hmm. and so when it's your baby you don't want somebody to stomp all over your baby. It, it, it hurts a little bit. But I think there, there's a, a switch that you have to turn on uh, when, you, when you decide to get serious about publishing. Some people just publish for, you know, because they want to. Mm -hmm. Other people, they're trying to make it their career. You're trying to make it a profession. And you, if you were doing that with any other career profession, if you were baking cakes, for example, you wouldn't just throw out a cake and just demand that people like it. <laughs> you have to bake a cake, let people try it, and they can give you feedback. So that way, when you release your cake to the public, it's the best cake and more people are going to want to eat it. And so I found with getting beta readers, when I got people in, in the demographic, I was trying to hit a couple people outside of the demographic just to get a different opinion to see how wide the uh, the interest would be getting their notes was probably the single biggest part of the entire editing process as just finding out what you know how, how is a 10 year old going to react to this scene as opposed to a 32 year old who has a 10 year old child you know and and the, the just the the way that uh, you can only get better if you take those suggestions to heart and try to expound upon it because at this point it's not your baby it's your craft mm -hmm. and if you're not constantly trying to sharpen your craft 
then you're never going to get anywhere. You're never going to get any better. And that should always be, that's always my goal when I'm writing is to make the next page better than the one that came before it. And so beta readers are valuable, in my opinion. Uh, if, if you don't use beta readers, then you're really setting yourself up for, uh, for a lot of negative reviews because you don't know what people think about your story. Right. And, and how do you cast that net? How do you, where do you find your, your beta readers, you personally? For me personally, um, I try to limit it not necessarily to people that I know. A lot of people's gut reaction is to find three or four close friends who tend to like to read. And I'm not saying that friends are a bad place to go. I've probably had two beta readers that I've, you know, they've been friends with me for a long time. But uh, when you get friends and family, there's always sort of that possibility that they're just saying oh yeah great job i really enjoyed it right and, and you're not getting brutally honest feedback for it because they don't want to hurt your feelings uh-huh. and so when i when i uh i started joining as many groups on facebook honestly that was about uh, i think the, the most of my beta readers came from facebook groups uh particularly one that author liz steinworth put together and so I probably got three or four from them. And then I got them to refer me to people outside of those groups that could also check it out. And so uh, Facebook is a huge tool for that, um, finding groups, uh, support, writer support groups. Because when you do a beta, I, I always like to get other authors' feedback because they're the ones who understand the writing as a craft. But it's also important to get someone who doesn't care anything about writing and all they care about is reading because mm. you want it to appeal to the reader not just to authors. <laughs> yeah. So and so, getting a sprinkling of all that just was kind of a little bit of hit and miss. But a lot Facebook and making those connections on social media is a huge impact, especially for most indie authors that I know. Mm. So uh, I mean, obviously, yeah, uh, social media sounds like it's helping connecting you with uh, other authors and stuff. What about for fans and and getting your book out there? <laughs> that is uh, that has been uh, sort of a a slow roll for me. Okay. Uh, my, my Kickstarter was extremely successful because I already had a set of people who wanted to help me with the book. Um, we, uh, my, my funding goal for it was about $1,000, and I think we wound up crossing about $2,500 within the first eight hours. Wow. And that was just because uh, a lot of the people that I went to school with, a lot of the people that I grew up with, uh, the, the kids that went to that camp when I was a child, all those people, you know, I kept in touch with them through social media. So that way, when I finally did release it, I'd been building it up for so long that a lot of those people jumped right on board to try to help out. And so from there, now a lot of it has been word of mouth. They'll, they'll take the book and they'll hand it to another parent who said, oh, yeah, I need something clean for my child to read because I just don't know what's good, you know, what's good literature out there anymore. And they'll say, well, you know, I've got a book here that, that my son just finished reading and then I'll get an email from some other, you know, who says, uh, oh, yeah, we got your book from, you know, a friend and and we really appreciated it. And that's it's always been really uh, encouraging as far as being able to know that the word of mouth has helped a lot. I'm hoping to be able to start doing some more uh, anticipated marketing for it. Uh, social media, Instagram has been huge. I've done several collaborative works with uh, several Instagram book, uh, book bookstagrammers, I guess, I guess is what they're called. <laughs> um, I just had a, a young lady uh, in Australia who ran, I think I got tagged in one of her posts randomly, and she was looking for indie authors to feature in a book giveaway. And so I sent her two books, and, uh, and she just finished reading it. And now there's several thousand of her followers who at least know my book exists, <laughs> all because I sent her two copies over to Australia. 
and uh, I haven't checked to see if I've if I sold any copies in Australia. But at least I know that they, the um, the in the I'm trying to remember what they call impressions. Yes. At least I know the impressions are there. That somebody has put eyes on that book, and it maybe they'll be inspired to buy it eventually. <laughs> But and, social media has been invaluable for all that. Yeah, no, I mean that that obviously, yeah. I mean, you made a connection across the world uh, that probably wouldn't have been there otherwise. Oh, absolutely. And uh, so it's it's one of those things where I I really do always strongly encourage people who, if they want to to get into this kind of you know world, use the tools that are available to you. You know, you can go to your libraries. They've got writing groups. There are reading groups in you know little towns. Um, but social media, by far, is still the best one because it's it's free. There, mm. There's nothing except time invested into meeting and talking with other people and trying to interconnect with potential fans. So you you spoke a little bit about uh, Kickstarter there. What was that process like for uh, you know for a book project? For a book project, it wasn't. It, I mean, there are definitely things that I would do differently now that I know. Uh, sort of what all was entailed with it, but I. It, the nice thing about it is it's very friendly for creative types, and so since I did most of the artwork and I had the manuscript already pretty much done, all I really used it for was sort of a way to get the uh, pre-orders out, you know. And and the ironic thing being that I didn't realize how long the process takes after the Kickstarter finishes, and so all of my pre-orders wound up getting to people, you know several weeks after the actual books were going out from people buying them on Amazon. Mm. And so there was a big learning curve trying to, you know, and, and now that I know how it works, I know how best to go about it for book two. And uh, I'll probably use the same platform and just amend the practice. But basically, I, I went, I did a little video where I, I put on a fat suit and pretended to be some sort of little scholar and told everybody why they should read this book by this guy that nobody's heard of before. <laughs> and uh, and it, it received, you know, um, a lot more attention than I thought it was going to. And momentum has a lot of things to do with that. Uh, when my face, my personal Facebook friends jumped on to support that, that bumped me to the top of that tier because all of a sudden it was getting a lot of traffic. Right. And so then Kickstarter took that and said, oh, wow, we're going to, you know, this has got a lot of traction really fast. Let's feature this and see how much more we can get because they get a percentage of whatever you, whatever oh, you okay. collect. And so they're incentivized for projects that are, are on the rise to try to push those to the front of everything. And it's, you know, it's the same sort of algorithms that Amazon uses when they try to push their top number one bestsellers. Mm. And so once the traction started building, by the end of it all, I think analytically about 60% of the people who backed me wound up being someone that I had reached out to on Facebook, either through a writing group, my personal friends list, uh, or the page that I had cultivated for the book. But about 40% of the people just found me organically on Kickstarter. And so I think that, you know, I mean, that's almost half of the people that supported me had never met me, didn't know anything about my book. But because it was on Kickstarter and it had a, a decent page, a decent following, and it was pushed by the company, um, about 40% of those people now have and you know have access to and got to read the book which i, I find is absolutely you know astounding uh when half of the people who back you have never met you before they're right. just willing they, they, they see the cover they see the video they read a little snippet and they're ready to help support you because they think hey you know what this is worth 20 bucks to me <laughs> and so it was a very good platform for what i was trying to do and now that i know a lot of the uh, the ins and outs and what not to do because of the first time I can do a better job at it the second go around. 
So it is some it is an experience that you would say you'd you'd do again. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm still planning on I've got book two in the works and so as soon as that one's to the point where it can I can start, you know, uh, getting the edit, editing and the ball rolling on that publishing process, I'll definitely at least look at Kickstarter. I'll probably do another one. Uh, won't be nearly as complicated. Make it I'm overly complicated everything this last <laughs> turn around. And so this time it'll be a lot smoother. But if you're if you are creative, whether you're doing a, a comic book or you're writing a novel or you're trying to self-publish, any of those methods, uh, Kickstarter is a really good way at least to sort of have a pre-launch party and potentially meet up with new collectives who are because now all those people who backed me, they're waiting for me to come out with a second one. And so the right. next the next go around, who knows? It might be twice as successful. It might not be successful at all because everyone read it and hated it. <laughs> There's no <laughs> way to tell. But I, I, I do anticipate using it again. So uh, what is uh, what is the response to, since the book came out on on social media? Have you had people reach out to you to to comment about how much they loved it? I have the 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 bane of any indie author's existence, especially on Amazon is getting the people who send you these really sweet messages on Facebook to actually take the time to write an Amazon review. Uh. <laughs> it, I've got, I cannot tell you how many messages, tweets, how many, uh, I've got, uh, people on Instagram who have reached out to me and they're just, you know, they, they loved the book. They thought it was great. They enjoy the story, which really, you know, makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. And right. But it doesn't, uh, the, the thing about that is that when they, you know, suddenly when you ask them to put it up on Amazon, it's an extra couple of steps. And so, you know, it's like, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to do that, uh, you know, when I have a couple of spare minutes. And so it, <laughs> it's both encouraging to get that, get the word that people are enjoying it and responding to it. But it's also extremely frustrating to not see any of that on Amazon for other people to look at. <laughs> you know, so. I uh, yeah, I we I know the exact same feeling. It's uh it's the same like, for podcasts. It's like, hey, if you could go and say those great things over on iTunes, like for a review, right. <laughs> it would help us uh, help us out a lot. But no, exactly. But yeah, what, I mean, what what can you do? You, people are still you know giving you praise, so it's amazing, right? Yeah, you know, I'll I'll soak and bask in it in my own glory. <laughs> if nobody else knows, so. I, it has been a positive response, and I'm really grateful for the people who take the time to reach out. Uh, I have had a lot of people reach out on social media, and that's that's just kind of cool because I, I'm just a fella who just works a normal job, does a normal thing, and I happen to put a book on Amazon, and so and suddenly I have you know these these 14, 15 year olds sending me fan art. I had one girl who said she wanted to cosplay uh, down nice. in Alabama, and you know just stuff like that is like that's so cool, but you know it's it's also off-putting it sometimes because you don't you try your brain's trying to catch up with what's what's actually happening and process what's actually going on <laughs> so you, like you just said right now that you're you're a normal guy with a normal job and stuff like that how do you how do you personally balance out you know taking the time to write and and create when you have a normal nine to five job so to speak well, uh, the, the the nice thing about doing what I do, I do a lot of freelance work. And so it's not necessarily a strictly nine to five okay. job, which is nice. The flexibility does help a little bit. Um, when I was working in an office uh, nine to five, essentially every day, I would basically have uh, <laughs> the, the only reason it got done was because I would come home at 530 and I would sit down at my computer and I just would not let myself stand up until I had accomplished at least something towards the editing process, whether that was finishing a piece of chapter art, going through some beta notes and making some adjustments, or uh, setting one of the tiers up on Kickstarter and getting the backdoor stuff sort of all settled away for that. It, 
it was exhausting. Um, it's not uh, something, it's not a process that should be taken lightly. Uh, like I was saying earlier, this is, you know, this is what I want to be my craft. Mm-hmm. And so I want to make sure that whatever I'm putting out there is as perfect as I can make it and as, and as well put forward in the beginning as I can make it. So that way it pays off later on down the road. So put in the, you know, it, it meant a bunch of late nights. It meant a lot of sleepless nights mm-hmm. uh, trying to get everything done. But it got done, and and now you know I can I, I I you can't sit back. You have to sort of keep the momentum going. So I'm I'm trying. You know nowadays I'm spending time just writing the rough draft, um, and I do that whenever I get a chance uh, in the car a lot. If I can bum a ride somewhere with some you know friends and I don't have to drive, I always take my laptop and just clickety click and ignore everybody else in the car <laughs> for at least the next thirty minutes. But at least it's my thirty minutes that I can spend trying to get stuff done because that's the only thing you can do is is hit the ground and hustle. So I, I I would think that uh, you know most people when they have the idea of a of a creative in their mind it's it's all whimsical and you know living right. living <laughs> life to uh, you know by the seat of your pants but it sounds like for you and I, I assume for most people deadlines are and and structure and schedules and stuff like that are very important like how 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 much is a how how important is a schedule for you in getting uh, the book done. I am terrible at scheduling. Um, I'll be honest. I mean, that is very true with creatives. Most of the time, that's not where we shine, uh, <laughs> is in analytically setting boxes right. know, and crossing those, checking those off. Uh, I mean, I I had a, at least four different publishing dates before I actually got around to publishing it. Uh, I wanted to really, the, the story takes place in fall. Uh, and so I wanted to release it, you know, right around Thanksgiving. But things happen, you know, you got betas who don't give you any information. It's one of those, okay, do I go ahead and publish it without all the, the information I asked for, all the feedback, and then risk not fixing something? Or do I wait for all these people and have to keep pushing it back? And I opted to go with the pushing it back because I would rather have made sure that my manuscript was solid and release it at a different time than try to rush into it and then realize, oh, wow, I've got all these mistakes. I've got, I mean, even, even now with all the time that I took, you know, publishing it, I still have gotten some emails, you know, letting me know, oh, hey, there's a typo on this page. Mm -hmm. You missed a, you missed some indentation there. And you're sort of like, rats, I did all that work. And, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, it can be frustrating, but at least it helped mitigate that. So as far as scheduling goes, like I first wanted to publish it in, in uh, November and I maybe got enough feedback from one beta to do that. And then I said, okay, I'll publish it for Christmas. And then, you know, Christmas, I thought I could get it out there, try to use, utilize that gift-giving, you know, time period to, to capitalize on that. And the, uh, the copy editor wasn't going to be done. And so then it pushed it into January. And I was like, well, if I could publish it before my birthday, then that would be, you know, just kind of neat. And by that point, you know, since the holidays were over, I, w- I just sort of said, you know what, it'll get done when it gets done. And I just kept making sure that, at least on my end, everything was laid out where it needed to be. So that way, the second the copy editor gave him back the copy edit, I turned around and in two days, it was online. Mm. You know, it was, it was much more of a having to sort of plan or being flexible enough to plan around the other people that you're relying on is very important. But when it comes down to what you have to do, make sure that everything you're doing is ready to go. <laughs> so that way, all you're doing is waiting on the other people. <laughs> uh, for publishing-wise, what, what was the route that you took? I, I decided to go with independent publishing. Uh, most of what I do on a daily basis uh, for other companies is marketing. So I wasn't really scared by the idea of having to self-market a book. 
it was a uh, it was more of an exercise in you know freedom. I enjoyed the flexibility. I didn't have and you know the the royalty percentage is nice on Amazon. You know, relatively speaking, compared to traditional publishing. The downside is that you everything is on you. So I had to come up with the cover design. I had to front all the cash to to get all the editing done, which is not a cheap process. Mm-hmm. And so it, it there's a lot of give and take. Um, I'm not I'm not opposed to necessarily. Uh, vending that particular manuscript, even now that it's published, to other publishers and seeing if maybe they would like to take up the mantle. It was more of an exercise in, I would like to try this and see what it's like. Now that I know what it's like, you know, it's a, it's a good system, but uh, I'm not opposed to do the traditional publishing route. There are pros and cons to both sides. All right. uh, the biggest pro being that in a traditional publishing sense, they are invested in your product, and so they're going to push the product. Mm-hmm. Amazon is so saturated right now, especially in this particular genre, that it's it can be very difficult to play the odds and get your book. Uh, Liz has done an incredible job of getting her book out there, getting the reviews in, and that's really what you have to have to trigger the algorithms to be successful on Amazon. So it, there's a lot of pros and cons, and I would definitely say I probably agonized for weeks over the decision. Uh, I watched all these YouTube videos, I watched podcasts, uh, just you know, finding out from other people what their experiences were. So that way I knew which path I wanted to go down in the long road, and I just eventually just opted for self-publishing because of the flexibility. Mm. And what was what, getting the, the physical copy of the book made, like what was that process like? Uh, it's actually fairly easy. Uh, if you're publishing through Amazon, as most people do, uh, they do. The Amazon bought out this company called Create Space that they were partners with, and now it's all done through Kindle Direct Publishing. And so, when you upload uh, the Kindle edition of your book, you can also upload the paperback edition. Um, and there's a lot of like little loopholes. You can pay somebody to go in and do the formatting. I because I do that on the computer on a daily basis, anyways. Excuse me. I just take the time. I took the time to do it myself, and it was it was a long process because you have to like upload it. Then you go through every page and make sure. Oh no, I've you know this was supposed to be on this side of the page. <laughs> and it's on this. Side. You have to go back and do the whole thing over again. But once you finally get it, uh, you just order a proof copy like you would order anything else on Amazon. And I, there's nothing quite so surreal as opening that package for the first time, even though it's got that little tape around the edge that says "not for resale, not for resale, not for resale." Right. You're holding for the first time, you know, something that has been sitting on your computer drive for the last ten years, <laughs> and and it's very, it was very surreal. I I was I was overcome with emotion. Um, the downside is that if you want a hardcover, you can't do it through Amazon. Amazon does not have a hardback version. And uh-huh. since I wanted a hardback version for my book, I had to go to another publishing source, which wound up being a little more expensive because if you're publishing just on Amazon, they will assign you uh, your ISBNs if you want, and it's essentially free. If you're going to go through the route of going to other, having other editions of the book and you're doing all of that yourself, you have to buy the ISBNs all by yourself. And so... They can get quite expensive. Uh, I think it's like $300 for a pack of 10. And each of your iterations of the book, your your Kindle book, your paperback, and your your hardcover all have to have different numbers. So it it was kind of a nightmare getting that set up. But Lulu.com does a very fantastic job with hardcovers. And so I decided when I released the book on Kickstarter, that would be one of the incentives was to provide a first edition hardcover book that wouldn't be available on Amazon later. And so you kind of build that 
uh, anticipation, people want to people want to invest in that one because it's not going to be around for as much. It's not going to be as easily accessible as it was on Amazon. So there's lots of platforms like that that you can get the actual physical copy done. Uh, the biggest thing is just getting a proof process done because if you have it on one side of the page and you've got to get another proof and it's next thing you know you've got I have probably had five or six stacks of just books that I couldn't really do anything with because there was one thing or another wrong <laughs> with the formatting. Um, my my hope is that if I manage to hang on to them long enough, they might be worth something later. <laughs> but uh, as of right now, they're just taking up space on my shelf. Okay, so so I, I I've gotten into a lot of the the technical side of, of publishing with you right now, but going back to your your story writing and, and storytelling, when you were creating your characters, what was your main characters? What was uh what was one of the main things that you wanted to get across with these characters? The biggest thing that I've found lacking in a lot of uh, this sort of postmodern era that we do a lot of storytelling, everything's, you know, all the bad guys have to be relatable. All mm -hmm. of the good guys have to be so severely flawed, mm -hmm. you know, that sometimes they're not even likable. <laughs> and so when I, when I went to design the characters, I wanted something that was a little more, you call it cliche, call it old fashioned. I wanted the characters to be honorable, likable characters that had faults. But overall, we're trying to be better people. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, like my, one of my biggest pet peeves with that, I loved Sleeping Beauty when I was a child because Maleficent was just the biggest, baddest meanie. There was nothing good about her. All you wanted to see was, was her get her comeuppance by the end of the movie. And the Angelina Jolie reiteration of that character was interesting, uh, and I, I enjoyed watching the movie. But it just sort of took, to me, it took away from the original just having the bad person. Some people are just bad because that's the way they are. Right. And it's unfortunate. And so when I went to create my villains and my characters, I wanted them to have depth. I wanted them to have story. But for me, in this, in this particular day and age, it, it was important to me to have very specific lines. These are the good guys. These are the bad guys. And the good guys embody things like honor and you know and honesty and decency and the villains are the antithesis of everything that there is to do with that because i think in a in a world where we try to paint everything with a gray brush it, it sometimes it's just refreshing to see a good guy versus a bad guy and the good guy comes out because he is good and when you were creating your your world of uh aaron garth do is there are there parts of the world that readers don't know about yet that that exist only in your mind or even on pages oh. <laughs> that haven't exist that haven't come out yet oh absolutely uh if if you were to take a look at the the outlines that i have for the next several books uh it's it's as if you are scaling out from a picture frame the first book took this much space and we explored this much of the world the next book is this much the next book is this much. and it just keeps constantly building on it because i believe uh, I don't believe in homogenous worlds. Uh, I like blending cultures. I like blending ideals. And part of that's just because of the way I traveled when I was a child. Getting to experience new things and new people. All, and, and that exercise in world building has just been phenomenal. You know, my, my bad guys are basically sort of uh, a blending of several different cultures, uh, very much Persian. Uh, if you look at the cover of the book, you can see that there's a lot of that sort of Middle Eastern architecture. 
Um, you know, so there's there's that, but there's also the blending of the sort of Nordic cultures and these Celtic cultures, and and even down, you know, heading into sort of the, the there's some that are more reminiscent of ancient Rome, and and being able to build out from that, I think, is very important because you don't want to swallow the you don't want to drop the reader into the middle of a world that is too vast for them to understand. And so the nice thing about having uh, a character like Paige, she spent her whole life in this one tiny section of the map. And through these adventures that she winds up taking with the Brotherhood, she her expansion, uh, her, her mind expands and her horizons expand. And so she gets to, you, you as the reader get to experience these worlds for the first time with a character that is also experiencing them for the first time. And so I'm hoping that by the end of the series, you know, we started out with a map this big that fit into the front cover of the book. And by then, it's going to be a poster that you're going to have to buy to hang in. <laughs> <laughs> I love world building. Sometimes I love it too much and it takes up way too much of the text. But that's okay. It's my book. <laughs> that's right. And you can do what you want. That's right. And I, I, and I know that we're early in the process right now because you said five, maybe six books in the, in the whole chronicle. But right. is by do you do you feel by the end of it you're going to have it, will there be a piece of the world that's going to be just for you not for some for others to know about? I think that uh, every author has that little that little hollow that little I'm sure that J.R. Tolkien had a little little spot in the corner of the shire that he never <laughs> told anyone else about it. because there is something about that I mean it's it, as an author as a, as a creative it is it is you know in a sense your baby. And so there's there's always there's always a secret or two that you want to keep keep uh, under your nose. So that way, you know, when people ask you, they, they know that there's a secret. They can tell. They can look you in the eye and know that you're not <laughs> telling them everything. And that's what keeps them coming back because that's that's at the end the, at the end of the day, a story is something that people want to to take. They want to learn from it, but they want to keep coming back for more. And that's that's always been very important to me. So I would definitely say that there's probably one corner of the map that might be burned on all those posters, <laughs> just to keep the mystery going. So, uh, at, I mean, we named a few authors, and you talked about uh, you know your uh, writing and, and your teachers and stuff like that. What were some of the influences for you growing up? Uh, I very much was into The Hobbit. Uh, the Hobbit, I probably, I, you know, I, I, to be honest, I never fully finished the rest of the Lord of the Rings series, but I read The Hobbit at least nine times by the time <laughs> I graduated high school. Uh, Christopher Paolini's uh, Inheritance Saga had just come out. Um, and so Aaron's, uh, Aragon and Eldest... I listened to those on tape when they first came out, and so that that was his style was very uh, simplistic. Isn't the right word, but it's easy to understand, and that's the problem that I had with some of these other fantasy authors is they have these names and these places and and a you know a character sheet eight million miles long that unless you're watching it on HBO, you can't keep track of who's who and who's trying to kill who and who's doing what. Right. And so for me, uh, a lot of those you know C.S. Lewis, uh, his stories. I still read them to this day. And Christopher Paolini, they made it simple enough for young readers to enjoy, but the stories are complex enough and the characters are, are good enough that people who are older and the young adults, you know, even I've, I've had some grandmothers who have read my story. And I, my, my goal was to, to do what they did for me as a child, which is give me characters that as a young age I could read and understand and fall in love with. And then 10 years down the road, I'm still willing to pick that book up or put that audio tape in my old cassette player and listen to it again because it's such a, a connective story. But it's simple enough for me to remember all the plot points, all of the characters, who they are. And that, 
I think that really played a big influence on me. So definitely C.S. Lewis, uh, Paolini to an extent, and uh, Tolkien, of course, is just sort of the patron saint of anybody who writes <laughs> in this genre. So I have to throw him in there. <laughs> so you, you said earlier that you you belong to a lot of these uh, Facebook groups and, and social media mm-hmm. groups where you you find your beta readers. And I assume that means that you also do beta reading for other people? Uh, ironically, I hate reading. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, I am not a good reader. Uh, I've, and I've never, I've never really pretended to, to be one who was very good at reading. I'm very good at audio and visual learning. Okay. And so books on tape, I'll do those all day long. Podcasts, <laughs> I'll listen to them all day long. Sitting down and actually trying to read a physical copy is difficult for me because my my attention span isn't that long. If I'm watching a movie, I'm always doing something else with my hands. Uh And so if I'm just focused on the book, sometimes I feel like I'm wasting a lot of very valuable time. But there are several authors uh, in in those groups that have been so good to me that I have have sat down and I have forced myself to make sure I was giving them quality feedback because, you know, you've always got to pay it forward. Right. And uh, so Marissa Grammel was, was insanely helpful reading with my book. Um, and so I've been doing a lot of beta reading for her as I've been able to. Uh, Christy Miller, uh, I've agreed to do some beta reading for her third book that's now coming out here, hopefully in the next few months. Um, and so I, I try to, to, to do as much beta reading as I can to help people, um, especially because I, f- I feel like without being too braggy, I have a fairly decent grasp of a lot of story aspects that some people don't really think about mm-hmm. when they're crafting a story. And so any kind of help I can give in that regard, I always try to. You know, if there's a way for a character to be more impactful, and you know, maybe I'll suggest that they, they can do this. Um, I don't. I don't typically do any kind of line editing just because I'm so terrible at that myself. <laughs> but uh, in general, story principles, I do try to to help in those groups as often as possible. Um, and I've done artwork for a few of them who just sometimes all you need is a picture to look at so you know what you're supposed to be writing about. And uh, so I I try to pay it forward in the ways that I can as often as I can. That's awesome. So. In in the times that you have done the have done beta reading, have you come across the fact that you had give uh, similar advice, like any one particular piece of advice that's that's similar for a lot of people, one that comes up a lot? Um, aside from the fact that you have to let go of the project as your baby, and you have to start making choices for the characters' good and for. Uh, for the good of your novel as a business person. If you're going to take it seriously, a lot of people that I've, I've wound up reading for, that's sort of the advice that I've had to give. You know, it's like, well, if, I understand that you think that this is very cool, but not very many, you know, the people in general are not going to like that whiplash or they're not going to like how you did that with a character or this kind of plot hole isn't small enough to just sort of shove off to the side. It's really got to be hammered out and fixed. And sometimes that can be hard to do. Uh, there's a lot of scenes in my book that were very special to me when I was 15 years old that, coming back to it 10 years later, I had a lot of nostalgia for because that was that was me, that was my friends, that was us doing stuff out in the woods, you know, a lot of little inside private jokes, you know, that no one else who reads these are going to know. They're not going to read it and, and understand it. And it, it just, it's not, they're not going to enjoy it. And so having to, to the, the one piece of advice that I always have to give is, you know, don't hold on to something so much because you love the idea. Don't ever be so invested in an idea that you can't let it go if it will make your book a better book. 
And so that's that's really you know be flexible and uh, and and that's probably the piece of advice that I have to give out the most. Okay, um, is you you got to be willing to to make the changes that will make people more invested in your world. And what has been the one biggest surprise for you in the whole process of of releasing and publishing a book? <sighs> the whole the I, I guess the surprise honestly is. I mean, not, it doesn't even have to be like a, a technical one. I mean, even if it's a cre- creative one, just like from the moment you started, you sat down to write down, to write to the moment you got the book in your hand. What was the biggest surprise for you? Uh, the biggest surprise, I think, honestly, was was how interested people are in reading new stories. There's a part of me because I don't read, um, because I'm not the kind of person like I'll go into the library for research. I'll 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 research wooden boats or blacksmithing or anything for hours and hours and hours. But actually sitting down and reading a story um, has always been difficult for me. And so for me, it was always I always worried that other people were the same exact way that didn't want to read a story. And so I think the the biggest surprise was finding out how many people actually wanted to take the time to read what I had to say. Because growing up, I just never did, uh, you know. I and so I was always worried that I'm putting all this effort and this work in, and that I think the biggest surprise was just that people wanted to read it. Um, because if it was me, I tend to be very, you know, selective with what I do with my time, and so I wouldn't have read it. <laughs> you know, if, if it if I had handed myself this book, it would have sat on the shelf for ages and ages. And so the biggest surprise was finding out that there are actually people who want to be involved in your creative process, that actually want to learn about the world that you're building. They want to talk about the characters and have these conversations, and that was just really pleasant to me. Uh, I was not expecting it, and uh, the support. Has has been overwhelming and and that's honestly been probably the biggest surprise at all <laughs> that that's that's awesome so we, we we know that you don't particularly like to read a lot but what <laughs> what is it that what is it that you do love to geek out about that's a you know that's kind of our thing here what, what do you like to geek out about i mean it sounds oh. like you like to travel <laughs> I do. I do enjoy traveling. I'm, I'm, I'm huge into the outdoors. Um, I am actually in the process of buying a 10-acre farm uh, that I plan to uh, turn into sort of a, a little hippie riding sanctum, uh, as it were. Uh, so I love doing stuff outside. I love hiking. I love fishing uh, and hunting, that sort of thing. All things that I reflect in my writing because the entire Brotherhood book is essentially one long hike filled with fishing and hunting and, <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. Uh, as far as geeking out about stuff, I'm a huge Marvel fan. Uh, I just saw Endgame last night, finally. Awesome. <laughs> um, and with, without any spoilers, just know that I, as a full-grown adult human man, sn- like ugly snot cried <laughs> for about 10 straight minutes during that film. And I was not ashamed of it. And so it was... I love I love Marvel. I am a huge fan of anything to do with Lord of the Rings. Everyone hated the Hobbit movies, and I went and saw every single one of them at least twice, just because I love the cinema. I love going to see movies like that, um, and I, I really do enjoy uh, keeping up with a lot of a lot of these stories uh, that are coming out. Um, I was never really big into Game of Thrones. Uh, I appreciate it for what it is. Uh, Outlander. Um, I'm not a 50 year old woman, but I love the Outlander series more than <laughs> anyone can say. And uh, so that one, I am absolutely obsessed. And I geek. And that's probably the biggest one that I geek out over, just because it's it's so refreshing to see Scots on screen. That uh, this is the not Mel Gibson. <laughs> and so that's every every new season. I'm I'm sitting there by the edge of the seat, ready to go. 
and I, I'm very geeky about history, and so that's probably the biggest geek out I have I mean, on average. I, I, I myself have not watched that Outlander show yet, but I am so intrigued by it because it's already what a a, a lady from the yeah, it's, it's, early it's 1900s that goes back in time. Yeah, the spark notes is it's a it's a nurse from World War II yeah. who gets shot back in time to the 1740s in Scotland, which was during the uh, Charlie just before Charlie's uprising, which was the last big uprising of the Scottish clans, and it's it's just, it's such a unique world and a unique story. And uh, Diana does a fantastic job of getting into the characters' heads and doing a lot of research on the history of the time to make sure that her story is being authentic to the people who would have actually lived at that time period. And if you're anything into history and swashbuckling adventures, I highly recommend that series. Um, I actually have to watch the show before I go back and read the book uh -huh. because I don't want the show to be spoiled for me. So. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> now, how excited are you about the Amazon Lord of the Rings series? I haven't seen too much about it because I, after I was disappointed with a couple of the Star Wars movies, I make it a point to not watch trailers for a lot of things okay. before I go see it. I had not seen any trailers for Endgame before yesterday. Oh, that's a good and thing. So, I yeah, I, after after a few disappointments, I just decided, you know what, I need to stay away from all that. So when I go in, it's completely fresh. <laughs> so I don't know enough about the Lord of the Rings series on Amazon to really give it a good judgment. But if there's anything going on any television medium that has to do with Lord of the Rings, then I'm extremely excited for it. <laughs> well, I mean, you'll be happy to know they haven't released any footage or anything like that. I believe oh, they're, good. they're still just <laughs> well, in like pre-production. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's it's sounding like they're they're you know ramping up to spend like the most money that Amazon's ever spent on anything for. Uh, uh, for this series so there you go that's Excellent. something to look forward to um, Excellent. something i can watch in the background while i type my own story <laughs> that's usually right. what winds up happening <laughs> so were you able to stay uh you know unspoiled going into in-game like because i mean you're what two weeks out from it debuting yeah <laughs> see i i saw usually most of the groups that i'm on the nerdy groups the, the rule is two weeks yeah okay. two weeks no spoilers and then you got to go see it. You know, people need to be allowed to talk about it. I, I thought it was sort of implied that since this is the biggest movie of the entire ten, last ten years, that there would be less spoilers than there were. Uh -huh. um, I sort of figured maybe I'd be safe for a month, but I, I had three things spoiled for me. Uh, one of them was a very big one, and the other two were just sort of minor. You know, sort of haha. You know, wasn't as funny as it as it could have been. Right. Um, I had one made major spoiler, and after that, I said, "Nope." I blocked everybody that I could think of <laughs> that could spoil it, and I just stayed off social media until last night. <laughs> and uh, if if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, then go see it now because <laughs> it is one that you want to see in theaters. This is true. Um, what about uh, video games? Are, are you a video game kind of person? Uh, if I had the time for it, I would be. Yeah. I used to play a lot of games like Assassin's Creed. Uh, I'm very much into those story-based games. I was never really into first-person shooters because I was never any good at them. Uh, and I'm not really a sporty type of person. So the, the Prince of Persia, um, you know, I, I play a lot of strategy games uh, on the computer nowadays when I have time to game. So I do a lot of Total War uh, just because I'm a huge history nerd. And I love the, the tactician behind, aspect behind those games. Um, 
And that's honestly, most of the time I, I split it. If I'm online, I'm usually doing artwork. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't really spend a lot of time gaming. I, I envision games that I would like to be made and then I <laughs> paint them and then they sit in a folder because I don't have the skill set to actually <laughs> turn them into a game. But I do a little bit here and there just to relax. So, so you, you you said it earlier with the with you go you go to the library and you research things. Obviously, you're you're a made up imaginary world, but you're using real world items like boats, like you said. Is there right? How much time do you actually spend in doing the research? Uh, quite a bit. Um, I think it's it's one of the. I think research is very important. Um, if I think of something that sounds cool, I will spend probably at least an hour researching that particular thing uh, before I include it in a book. Because the last thing you want is somebody that's an expert in that field look reading your book and be like, well, this obviously would not happen this way. <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of like I've seen a bunch of people roasting the Game of Thrones uh, for the terrible tacticians in this giant battle that they just filmed. Right. And I don't want that to be me. I don't want to be the next BuzzFeed article about how terrible you know, that particular aspect of the story was. Right, you don't need Neil deGrasse Tyson coming up and being like, "Hey, it wouldn't you work know, that way." <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't tell you know. I don't. I'm not going to pretend to write a car, a book about diesel engines because I have no idea how they work. <laughs> and so I'm not going to write something that a diesel mechanic can pick up and then pick apart just because this guy's an absolute moron. So, it, so. you you did you did also say um, you know when you're visualizing it, maybe you visualize it in a film format. Do you have some? Uh, actors in mind for your main characters like when you were writing uh you know some i think everybody does to an extent um i'm just it just told me that i got like one percent left i'm sorry i wasn't charged up a little better but uh it's okay we're almost so, done all right uh well you know it's a. Uh, uh, honestly, actors-wise, I, I, uh, Yvonne Straczynski, yeah. uh, I think she's Polish. Uh, she was an actress in that show, Chuck, right? Uh, which was one of my favorite shows. And I, I think that if, if I could get a younger version of her, like her and her set when she was like 17, mm -hmm. that would probably be the face that I would want for Paige's uh, sister, Olivian. Um, all the other characters, because they were based on people from my childhood, it's kind of been hard for me to picture them as actual actors because, you know, in my head, they're all the, the people that I grew up with. Um, I, I suppose if I had to pick somebody to play Paige, um, I could see Saoirse Ronan, uh, some, you know, basically any young, very pale white <laughs> lass that has bright blue eyes and blonde hair, you know, <laughs> a, uh, which is a very broad range of, of actresses that could, that could be good for that. But the other thing is most of the movies I watch you know, all the actresses are my age or older. I don't watch a lot of shows where right. you know the actresses are younger, so it's hard for me to to find to know enough actresses that are in that seventeen, eighteen year old bracket that would be good for the part. <laughs> it makes complete sense. So, if you uh, this is our our question on Hey Mitch, if you uh, could have one useless superpower, what would it be? I think it would be the ability to basically wipe my hand across any piece of clothing and use it like a lint roller. Uh, <laughs> if it, I, I can't tell you how many times I'll go to parties or I'll go to these events or I'll go, you know, we'll be at church and somebody will have a black, a black dress or a black shirt on and just little pieces of dust sticking to it or, or cat hair. I can't stand pet hair on my clothes. And so if I could just wipe that off and not have it stick to me and my person, that would probably be a useless, but 
uh, to me, very important superpower to have. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, what what's the what's your social medias then, so, so our listeners can get a hold of you if they need to, or, or follow you and, and learn more about your book. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the my social medias, uh, if they want to find my page on Facebook, right now it's the Brotherhood Book uh, at uh, facebook.com slash the Brotherhood Book. Um, it'll probably change after the second one comes out just because I'll probably want to keep everybody, you know, I don't want them to have to like seven or eight different pages to keep up with me. Uh, but that's what it is right now. And then the uh, my Instagram, uh, if you want to follow my author Instagram, it should be uh, author underscore Philip uh, Smith. Uh, you can find me there. I've got much longer hair <laughs> in, in that picture, but I'm on there. Um, also, if they want to look up... Uh, uh, there's a, a the, one of the groups that I'm part of is uh, the Castle Rogue writing group, and they have an Instagram as well. A lot of talented authors that have beta read for me that I'm currently beta reading for. Um, they get involved with that. Liz Steinworth uh, sort of head that up, and uh, she has a, a, a great social media platform herself. So if you haven't followed her, you definitely need to. And all the people that she interacts with are just absolute brilliant people to work with, and uh, I highly recommend following their social media as well. But that's, those are my two main ones: is uh, is is uh, Facebook, the Brotherhood book, and then author Philip Smith on Instagram. Wow. Well, all right. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on 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 the show and, and talking oh, about absolutely. your book. Absolutely, it's been a blast. Like I can't wait to do it again. Maybe we'll have another go after a book two hits the scene. I I, I welcome it. I, I would I'd love to to have you back on. Sounds great. Um, uh, if you want to follow me, I am at Mitchipedia GEM on, on Twitter. The rest of Geek Elite Media is at Geek Elite Media on Twitter, at Geek Elite Media on Instagram, Facebook.com forward slash Geek Elite Media is our Facebook page, and our website, geekelitemedia.com, for archived episodes of this podcast and other podcasts on the Geek Elite Media Network. But until next time, this is Hey Mitch on the Geek Elite Media Network saying, always remember to geek, geek out. out. This concludes our broadcast. Mitch here from Geek Elite Media, and I want to talk to you about Cuts by Candice, an experienced hairstylist that is willing to work with you to get the right look for you. When it comes to important events in my life and I need to look good, I trust my hair with Candice. Mention our promo code GEEKOUT when making your appointment through the end of May 2019, and you will get 10% off your hair services. Follow Cuts by Candice on Facebook and Cuts by Candice 3 on Instagram, and start looking the best you you can.